water bottle. One thing I do is I get dry mouth, so I gotta drink water. Be patient. I'm not trying not to keep you too long. I'm Steve Dupree. Uh, just a little bit about who I am and uh, my family, a little bit about my history because I recognize a lot of you, but I know a lot of you don't know me. I know you who have been in my missional community. We've been here about a year living in Dahlonega, coming to the branch. We like the branch a lot. Uh, I've made friends with some people. Gabe is a good friend. Uh, thank you, Gabe, for asking me to teach today. Uh, I'm a farm boy from North Carolina. Grew up on a tobacco farm. Met a, met a farm girl. Met a farm girl in high school. Liked her a lot. Fell in love with her. Married her as quick as I could because we just wanted to get on with it. And marriage was the right thing to do. We did that. So we've been married a long time. Uh, it stuck. Been married to her coming up on 43 years. My wife, Wanda. And uh, I am proud of that. I'm shooting for 80, just so you know. 80 years. That's a long time. Uh, I'm preaching on patience today. So I got a little bit. Been married a long time. If you love somebody that long, that well, take some patience. Uh, I've worked most of my life. I'm not working now, which is a blessing. I'm enjoying retirement. Uh, I did 32 years uh, building computer systems for different computer companies. The last one I worked with for about 15 years was Hewlett Packard. About 10 years ago, God uh, called me into ministry. He'd been calling me a long time. That's kind of how God works sometimes. You know, He keeps He keeps on and on. And I finally said yes. Uh, and I uh, joined a church. I was called to a church as an executive pastor. Uh, in Houston, Texas, north of Houston, the Woodlands, at Stonebridge Church. I was there about five years. I loved it. Had to make some adjustments. Uh, church is not Hewlett-Packard. It's a whole different ballgame. Uh, so I slowed down, and I, I got some patience, and I, I really enjoyed it, and I grew in the Lord there. Four years ago, a little over four years ago, um, I was called to Gainesville uh, to work for Adventures and Missions. I've been associated with them for years. I was on their board. I love their ministry. Uh, they called me there to, to lead. Uh, I did that for about three years. The last year, I kind of was transitioning out. End of last year, I retired. Uh, and I thought, I didn't think I would like retirement. I thought I'd be bored. I love it. I love it. Uh, every day is not Saturday, but it's pretty close. It, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. I'm not going to complain. I know God's got some stuff, though, for us to do. And here's one of them. Uh, you know, uh, I want to talk a little bit about why I like this church so much. There's a shift going on in the Western church. It's, it's a great shift. And you can see it. Uh, you know, I've been in church a long time. I love church. Um, and have been involved in church 35 years. And, um, but I, th this shift, and I've, I've heard people talk about it. I heard a guy named Reggie Neal, who's a good leader teacher in seminaries and different areas in America, talk about this. And he said, uh, you know, um, church is shifting from church-centric to kingdom-centric. And I love that because it's, uh, it's like, you know, church, when I was a kid and growing up, church was where you went. It was brick and mortars. You know, you went there every week, and when you left church, you weren't in church anymore. It's kind of the way it worked. Jesus talked about church one time, um, and it was wonderful. He, he gave... Peter, the keys to the kingdom. He gave us the keys to the kingdom. But he talked about kingdom over a hundred times. Jesus is about the kingdom. His church was his gathering. Uh, Reggie 
gave me a good analogy I want to share with you real quick before I get into the sermon. He said, church, if you're thinking about, you know, life and kingdom, church is like halftime. It's just a game, right? You know, it's where we, it's where we come every week. It's kind of what we, what we do. It's more than that. But he says it's like halftime. And life, kingdom, is the game, right? It's where we are when we're not in church, when we're beyond these walls. And when we come to halftime, what do we do? We reflect. You know, how do we do? You know, what were we good at? What, 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 what kicked our butt? You know, what do we need to do? How do we make adjustments? Where are we headed? You know, what is our focus? How do we play this game better? How do we do it? That's, this is what we do when we come here. We get encouraged. We get rest. But at the end of the game, when it's all over, when it's done, we can talk about week to week, we can talk about life, you don't say, wow, halftime was great. Boy, we, did, boy, we, we got killed in the game, but halftime was great. We don't do that, right? It's life. It's what happens outside these walls. And that's what we're talking about when we say kingdom-centric. It's what I love about the branch. Missional community, DNA. It's, and, and I see the branch being more and more a church that is kingdom-minded, more into the community. And that's you guys. That's you guys. Students, life in Dahlonega, but also these other campuses and other places we'll go. So that's, I just want to throw that out there that I'm so appreciative of a church that's kingdom-minded. And, and just seeing the shift in church in general in the Western world. It's that way, believe me. In third world countries, it's pretty kingdom-minded. And I love seeing it come to the West, to America. So, uh, our topic today, uh, what is God? This is the fourth question uh, in the Westminster, Westminster Catechism. Westminster Catechism in the 1600s was given because there weren't many Bibles. And people memorized it. Uh, but it's great. What is God? Here's the answer to that is God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. That's a mouthful, and it's amazing, isn't it? But we don't talk that way in the coffee shop and when we're around each other. But we do talk that way here, and that's good. Do we need to uh, talk this way out in the world? Maybe not, but we need to have it in our hearts and minds. Who God is needs to be a part of how we think and operate in this world. That's why it's so good for us to come together into the gathering today and talk about who God is. Uh, you know, you can study the attributes of God separately, which is what we've been doing. And that's, I love this because it's topical, but it's great to know who God is, uh, his nature, his being. Uh, but you know, you cannot, you know, God cannot be separated from his attributes. Everything he does is a conglomeration of his attributes. A.W. Tozer describes it really well as a quote. He says, all of God's acts are consistent with his attributes. No attribute contradicts another. All harmonize and blend with each other in the infinite abyss of the Godhead. Uh, A.W. Tozer has a wonderful way with words. He can say it much better than most of us. So um, let's pray. Lord, thank you for meeting us here today, that we can worship you and find peace and inspiration in you. Thank you for this good worship we had this morning that we have shared, and we pray that it pleases and glorifies you, Lord. That's what we want to do. Help us, Lord, as we begin to study your word, preserve 
for centuries that we would know the truth of you and your glory. Be with each of us sitting here today. Uh, bring us to a stillness and a focus that we could hear you in Scripture and teaching that it would grow us closer by hearing and doing. Help me, Lord, not get in the way of your good truth and spirit and only your truth would ring clear this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today, we talk about God's patience. And it's not like ours. You see, God is different. He doesn't worry about outcomes and circumstances. Why is that? Because He already knows the outcome, right? <laughs> we talk about the patience of God. We're not talking about Him enduring pain. Uh, we're talking about His long-suffering, a word we'll talk about this morning. Uh, his patience toward people, toward us, toward His people over time. That's what the patience of God is about. He's not worried about how things turn out. He is. He doesn't worry. His patience is toward us. The Hebrew word is arek or haek. It's kind of like clearing your throat. I thought about that. It's like whenever I get lose my patience, just clear my throat because it means patience. Uh, and the word means, it's an Old Testament word, and, it's, uh, and it means long-suffering, uh, slow to anger. That's just how we see it. Sometimes it's just patient as in slow. The word often used in the New Testament, a Greek word, makrothumio, which sounds like spacesuit material. And actually, when you look at the word, that's kind of the way it's made up. Macro is kind of small. Thermio is heat or temperature. And uh, it translates into long-suffering, but it means taking a long time to boil. This is the patience of God. Why are we so impatient as people? Why is that? Because we are. I admit I am. I think most of you would admit you are. Because we know we only have so much time on earth. Our internal clocks, they're, they're hardwired. Uh, we hate to waste time and we grow anxious, angry, even fearful when things take too long or don't happen the way we expect them or when we expect them. Why do we change to impatient rednecks when we drive? What is that about? Why? I'm talking to guys, but I know a few women. My daughter's sort of this way. Uh, you know, if demons do exist, they live in pickup trucks. I'm just saying. It's another sermon. I know they're in there. It's crazy how we men just get nuts when we drive. As people, you know, we kind of, we worry about future events. We want a crystal ball and we don't have one. Truth be told, we do have one. It exists in God's Word. In 2 Peter 3, which is our primary scripture this morning, God tells us how the world order will be changed through Peter, how Jesus Christ is coming back to earth to set up a new kingdom. But the theme of all of it, of this scripture, is patience. God's slow the bowl. Let's read 2 Peter 3, and we'll start in verse 1. Take it as far as we need to. A little time there. I know you've discovered the Bibles under your chair if you don't have one. All right, Peter chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. And both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. 
knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by that same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You don't miss this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of the Lord, the long-suffering of our Lord, as salvation, just as our beloved father, brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. These are some of the things in them that are hard to understand. I'll leave it there. In this scripture, we have assurance of God's sovereignty, right? We see his plan. He's told us, through Peter, what's going to happen? He has a sovereign plan. He's seen his sovereign plan through all of time, through the coming of Christ up until now. It's real. Um, his perfect plan will come in his perfect timing, all based on his patience with us in eternity. So we'll revisit this scripture later when I talk, but first I want to go back to the Old Testament and kind of begin to paint a picture of God's patience through how he, uh, how he actually uh, loved his people Israel. Look at that relationship some. So Exodus 32, verse 9. I've got a lot of scripture, so you guys can jump around. Or I'm going to read all of it, but we're, we're going to hop around a little bit. That's the thing about topical. When you talk topical, you just got to you got to bring the scripture into it to describe who God is, especially when we talk about his attributes. Moses begs for God's patience for a stiff-necked people here. It reads this way, starting at verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And while Moses was up on Mount Sinai meeting with God, and receiving the tablets of law, God sees the people below making golden calf and worshiping. And frankly, he's ticked off. He's tired of it. Stiff-necked people, my goodness, all I've done for you. And here you are. He, you know, if, if God did what he said he was going to do, it would be you know, National Wipeout Israel Day. It would have been. It would have been the end. And Moses is like, he caught it. He's like, 
And I'm going to make a nation of you all by yourself. You're all that's left, Moses. And Moses begins to plead. Here's what Moses says. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Why does God relent? Moses' plea for mercy. Why? Why does he do that? Well, one thing is I don't think Moses' argument was a surprise to God. I don't think Moses told God anything that he didn't already know. <laughs> he knew what he had done. But it's how Moses did it. He appealed to God's glory, to God's power, to God's sovereign plan. He says, God, here's what you've done. Here's what you've done. But Moses also in his heart he was begging. Moses was a broken man. In that moment, Moses is like, oh my goodness, all these people that I love, God is going to destroy. And I'm all by myself. So he appeals to God in a way that first puts God so that God knows that he knows who he is. He knows his plan. He's with God, but he's begging. God's patience gives him mercy in the face of his brokenness. Never hesitate to beg for mercy with the Lord for those you love. Never. He is listening. He is patient. He is moved more by our brokenness ever than our defiance. The attribute of patience in the Lord calms his righteous anger. You see this? Patience. This attribute we're talking about today. This is what calms God's righteous anger. It suspends his wrath. And what happens? It allows God to forgive us. It's a lesson for us too, right? It's a lesson for us. What calms our... It's not about being right. What calms our anger? Patience. Patience. God's patience. Love. <laughs> Hang on. Moses explains the mercy of God, but also... He makes note of justice. Move down to Exodus 34, verse 6. Here's what it says. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but, when you see a but in Scripture, you need to hang on. It's going to take a 90-degree turn. But, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's pretty tough. Did you catch this? God does not clear the guilty, the unrepentant, the haughty, the evil. He is just. Do not mistake God's patience for His permission. Say it again. Don't mistake God's patience for His permission. This is what he's saying here. We're going to come back to this as a theme later in scriptures. Next story I want to talk about is Jonah. We know Jonah's my favorite, one of my favorite Bible stories, right up there with David and Goliath and parting the Red Sea. You know this story. I'll give you a quick overview. 
Jonah was commanded by God to go to Nineveh and preach salvation to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the most torturous, cruel, evil civilization recorded in history. They were just awful, evil people. They sacrificed their children. They publicly flayed people, enemies and just people they didn't like. They were enemies with the Jews. Jonah literally hated them. He did not want anything good to come to them. So when God told him to go and warn them of, the, of their coming destruction, he ran away on a boat, jumped on a boat to go to Tarshish. But you know the story. God sent a storm. You know, the guy said, you know, God must have sent this storm. Who on the boat has done something to pick God off? Jonah says, it's me. They throw him overboard. A big fish swallows him, a whale. He lays three days in the belly of a whale. Here's an interesting note. That just, you know, I kind of found this. It's like he's swallowed in the Mediterranean, but he spit out on the shores of Persia. So if you know your geography, there's no Suez Canal. So I like to think this fish was a turbo whale. It went all the way out the Mediterranean, down by the coast of Africa, around Cape Horn, up to the Persian Gulf in three days. That's crazy, isn't it? I don't know if that's true, but I like to think it's true, especially when I was a kid. He could have thrown him up in the Mediterranean, and he had to walk all the way. But that's a better story, Persian Gulf. So, Jonah preaches destruction in 40 days to Nineveh. They hear it. The king makes a decree. They repent. And the most evil people in the history of civilization turn to God, and Jonah is not happy. Jonah 4.1. Here's what Jonah says. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, patient, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Here we see that God's patience, he is slow to anger, is counted as salvation to the Ninevites. Just as we'll see, it's the same for the Gentiles. His patience over thousands of years, choosing his people that have been faithful, unfaithful, faithful, unfaithful, faithful, over and over. Read Kings. Read through the history of Israel. They were, they were expelled from from Jerusalem. They were expelled from the Holy Lands even. I mean, but God always inviting them back, reconciling through his patience. Why? Because he has a sovereign plan. He has a sovereign plan for salvation that Jesus would come out of the Jews. We see it over and over in the Old Testament. The Old Testament's a love story with a lot of drama. It really is, truly, how God loves his people. Let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter is addressing the impatience of Israel and reiterating God's prophecy of his return through fire and destruction, and he speaks directly of God's timing here. Look at verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as a day. God works on a different clock. We know this. He is infinite and timeless. The only thing that matters is that if he says it's going, he's going to do it, he does it. He will do it. God knows the exact time of his fulfillment, just like he knew the exact time of your birth beforehand. 
and he knows the exact time of your death. And while we fret and press on to live as long as we can, God knows that perfect time that aligns with his perfect plan. So for some of us, this is hard. I mean, we see death take people, it feels unfair. My best, my best buddy died a month ago, and he died suddenly, and it felt so unjust. But if I know the Lord, I know that he went in God's perfect time. So I want to have confidence in, in our Lord, that he is sovereign, and that there's peace in that. I think we all can just really embrace that this morning, knowing that he knows when we're coming, he knows when we're leaving, and it's all about him uh, in the big picture of, of reconciling us to him in heaven. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is not slow. In some um, translations it says he's not slack. It's a great word. He's not waiting to get around to it. He does not put things off. He's not like us. He will do what he says. He keeps every promise. But behind every promise, every plan is God's patience. We have salvation because he wants it for us. He's waiting for us. He's waiting and waiting that none of his children should perish. We should be so motivated by such a loving and merciful God, knowing that he is waiting. Is he waiting on you? Is he waiting on me? Waiting for us to kind of screw up our courage and have that conversation with a friend that doesn't know Christ, doesn't know the love of the Lord. Is he waiting on us? Is he waiting on us to maybe develop some of those relationships into a deeper intimacy so that we can actually speak truth to someone and they can speak truth to us? Is he waiting on us to give up on shame and blame and live free is he waiting on us to stop straddling the fence, towing the line, whatever you want to call it, eat your cake and have it too? Is he waiting on you? I don't know what he's waiting on you for, but I know he's waiting on me. <laughs> he is. It's a great question to take to God today. What is God waiting on for me? What is God waiting on for me? Verse 13. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. God's patience provides hope for the human race. It is through his patience that we are saved. Patience controls God's sovereignty and his perfect plan. God has given us his son Jesus as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. Jesus died for our sins in our place. And when we accept this for ourselves, we are saved from our sins. God does not judge us for the sins forgiven through Christ. Because God is patient, we are given the time to hear the message, all of us, all of those not in here, to accept, to become sanctified, to be made more and more into his image, to go and make disciples. These are the things that God is patient with us about. He's waiting. Verse 15, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Thank you, Peter. Paul is hard to understand, isn't he? He gives us some tough stuff to work through, doesn't he? I can identify with Peter here. It's a great segue to Romans 9.22.
Romans 9.22. Tough little piece of scripture here. But it's good. It's about God's patience. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make known His power, has endured with, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So God is patient. Even with those prepared for destruction, how much more for those for mercy? How does a man become prepared for destruction? By turning his back on God. Especially those who know the story, yet refuse to accept it as truth. Rather, they follow their own strength and way in life. Men and women who live evil lives with no regard for God, God His law, or His salvation in Christ, and have lived without repentance, are prepared for destruction. This is God's Word. Why does God make men for destruction? Why didn't He just make us all good? It's a tough piece of Scripture here. To make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy. It says it right here. Why does men prepare, why does God make men for destruction? To make known His riches of His glory for vessels of mercy for you and us, the children of God. <laughs> it's hard to accept this Scripture for some of us that God creates humans that He will not have in heaven and He will not save. But how do we know the richness and goodness and glory of God without the backdrop of evil and bad? You can't see it without... Con you cannot. You don't know how good God is unless you know... And we know how bad the world can be. You see it every day. Thank God for His mercy and His glory. And we will pray for those who don't know Him. And if His patience is exceeded even to the sons of perdition, the vessels of destruction, how much more so will He give His mercy and patience to His own children, vessels of mercy? If you're someone who might worry over the Scripture to the point of wondering, am I chosen? I hear this. Well, I've had discussions in Bible studies. Am I chosen? I would suggest if you're even asking the question, you're in a place of knowing and coming to the Lord. If you're asking the question, am I chosen? Don't worry about Him choosing you. That's settled. Don't worry about God choosing you. That is settled. It's done. Say yes to God. Say yes to Jesus Christ. And know that your faith built up by God's Holy Spirit, your faith built up by saves you and saves you a lot of worry. On another note, if this makes you worry about others whom you know are not living for the Lord, don't give up on them. Be diligent in your own faith. Living a life that begs the question and always is ready to speak of your faith and pray for them. Beg for them if you love them. God is patient. He has loving patience. He's kind. Talk about love. Let's, let's, let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, 4 and 7. Very familiar verse. Read it almost every wedding. If you've been to a wedding, you've probably heard this there. I'm sure you've heard this before. If you're married, you probably had it read at your wedding. And it's awesome scripture describing love. Let's read it. 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things,
things, hopes all things, endures all things. It describes God. Since God is love, a concept introduced by John when he spoke of Jesus, God is love. Let's look at this verse for a moment. Love is patient and kind. So it says first. That's the definition. What is love? It's patient and kind. The following eight things are negatives about what love is not. So if you substituted patience for love, it gives you a real feel for this for patience. Love is patience and kind is patient and kind. Therefore, patience does not envy or boast. Patience is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Move on down to the end. Patience bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. Patience. Patience. Love characterizes God's patience. This is what, this is what the verse is telling us. How do you know when someone loves you? How do you know? It's like, I love you, man. <laughs> well, maybe you can't help yourself, okay? But <laughs> that's not how you tell. You tell how someone loves you by how they act when you've been a jerk. <laughs> when you have been impatient, when you've been maybe a little, you know, unloving, do they still love you? Are they exercising, you know, because why? Because for someone to love you when you're being a jerk, they have to be patient with you, right? I mean, that's kind of like what marriage is built on is patience with each other because it's, you know, we're people. We, we have to, we, we, if we want to love each other, really love, this kind of love, talking about here, talked about here in Corinthians, is, you know, we have, patience, it has to be there. So, God's patience is characterized by love. So, I want to help us apply this, some of this today, uh, what we know about God's patience to our own lives. And uh, more scripture. Romans 2, verses 1. Back to Romans. Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the richness of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So there's three things here I want to point out to you. First is every time I condemn someone for doing the same thing as I do, I condemn myself. Finger points back at me. It's not a good thing. Every time I'm not punished by God for sin, God is giving me time to repent. He is patient in this way. Third thing, if I refuse to repent, I store up God's wrath against me. When I live up when I live an unrepentant life, I'm running up an eternal tab, and it's not a good thing. This is what Paul's telling us. Don't confuse God's patience with his permission. 
patience and kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's patience has an end, and the end is your salvation. It is your inclusion in His plan as a child of God. Paul is warning us not to try God's patience through our blindness to see our own need for a Savior, to see our sin for what it is, rebellion against God. How does he say it here again? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance? If ever there was a warning against health and wealth, here it is. Don't make assumptions that just because life is going good for you, God is okay, okay with your so-so, lukewarm, someday I'll make it right with God attitude. His patience for us is to lead us to repentance. God's patience is not his permission. Permission from him to ignore repentance. That's pretty clear in this scripture. So, where do we find the patience of God? The gift of patience. Where, how do we go about that? There's so many ways in the Bible that talks to this. But one, one I want to just point out, it's kind of obvious in front of us. Galatians 5.22 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It's one verse. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Through the Holy Spirit. Patience comes through the Holy Spirit. It's fruit of the Holy Spirit. All these things. Like, what is fruit of the Holy Spirit? Well, it's the Holy Spirit in you producing fruit. Patience produced by the Holy Spirit is a different kind of patience. It's God's patience that comes to us and we do. Now, I don't know how we exercise the demons from our cars and trucks because they might be in that's another sermon. But we can find patience for ourselves through the Holy Spirit. As God's children, we are equipped by His Spirit to produce fruit. If a person can drive the length of 400 back and forth every day, day after day, and never get mad, never get angry, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm pretty sure of that. I'm, if nothing, they are filled with the Holy Spirit, a virtual fruit tree of the Spirit, especially patience. So where will we utilize our patience? Where will we utilize? How, how do we take the patience that God gives us through His Holy Spirit? In your prayers, in your quiet time, in your relationships, in your work, in your neighborhood, in your coming and going in kingdom life every day. It's just fundamental to how we live. He is true to His Word. He is coming back. And He is patient, waiting that none will be lost. What is our role in coming along beside a patient God? He told us to go and make disciples. Do you think that might take some patience? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> a few weeks back, someone changed uh, the 26,000 that we do. We, we go out to, to 27,000. I'm like, ooh, it got bigger. What happened? I guess the population in Lumpkin County is growing, or we're just not making a lot of progress. You know, maybe both, probably both. I think it's just a mistake. Yes, yes, yes. Either way, ask God this week how he can help you help someone who doesn't know him. And you're going to need some patience. Relationships take patience, don't they? Don't they? They take patience with ourselves. Take patience with the Lord. Like, God, you asking me to do this? Question today.
what is God waiting on you for? What is God waiting on you for? It's a great question. So as we take communion, which is the weekly practice here, remembering what God has done for us in Christ here at the branch, I want to remind you that communion is reserved for baptized believers. So as we join in communion, let us be reflective of God's great patience with us, that in His perfect timing He took on the flesh of man, was broken in body for our transgressions, was poured out in blood for our sacrifice, that He, Jesus Christ, now sits on the right hand of God the Father, and He waits patiently for us, and in due time, perfect time, will come back and establish His kingdom on earth. Today, let us be thankful for His patience. Let's rest in His perfect timing. And let's be His kingdom-minded children. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, thank you for your patience that controls your sovereignty and perfect plan that you have chosen us to be a part of your plan. Thank you for your patience that calms your righteous anger and instead leads you to forgive us when we don't deserve it. Thank you for your patience that leads to our salvation. Your Son provided at the perfect time. Thank you, Lord, for your amazing grace and mercy, for being a loving God that in Christ has shown us what true love is and that it is patient and kind. Lord, help us to be more like you in patience, loving and kind, that we would easily give of ourselves, that more may come to know you. We ask all these things.